You are listening to Conversations with Akila. Please be aware you are getting ready to listen to an episode that is intended for a mature audience only. There may be some topics that offend those who are not ready to hear it or who may be or may have been triggered in the past by certain topics. Please keep in mind, I am not here to offend or disrespect or upset any entity as my views and my opinions are my own. I will remain respectful as you can do the same. Thank you. Hello, hello, hello there. Yes, welcome back to Conversations with Akila, where you are listening to your host, Akila Peinado, and you know I have a lot to say. Okay, if this is your first time here, come on in, you know, be prepared to be blown away because it's lit around here. And if this is your second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever time listening, thank you so much for coming back. I need your support. I need all of your help. Um, Please feel free to share, to rate this episode. Um, Comment. Let me know what you're thinking. I really, really appreciate that. Let me tell you something. As soon as I start recording, it doesn't fail. My throat begins to act up. I do not know why it happens whatever. It just is what it is. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into what our episode is about today. So as you know, if you don't know, I am doing a series on, I believe it's Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas's book on sex named sexuality and the black church, a woman's perspective. And woof, I gave the introduction to it in the last episode that I posted. So if you haven't had the chance, please scoot on over there so you can get a broader view of what this book is about. I mean, the the title of the book is pretty self-explanatory, um, but it, she goes into great detail explaining this title and it has been really intriguing. Um, I love reading things that make me think. I love reading things that make me, that even maybe even challenge my beliefs. I'm not afraid to be challenged in what I believe. I'm not afraid to be challenged in what I think. I'm not afraid of confrontation in general. Okay, say what you got to say. Like, I'm not afraid of that. And let me tell you something. This book so far has done that. I'm not going to say it's challenged anything that I believe because there's a lot of things in this book that is being discussed where I'm like, "Mm -hmm." I kind of felt like this for a very long time. I just didn't know that there were words to be put to it, that there were others out there who felt and think things um, or have been thinking about things the way that I think about them. Um, As you know, I've decided to begin discussing sexuality and culture and Afro-Caribbean culture and where the church falls into all of that because I am a part of that world, a huge part of that world. I am not a well-known figure, but that world governs a lot of my upbringing still. It governs a lot of my current life. Um, And I'm not saying that what they've done isn't good. Uh, There are good aspects to being a fundamental Christian. I love it. I have a whole extended family because of it, but there are some things that were kind of missed, you know, on the wayside that I feel like, okay, there may be little girls or young women going into adulthood, womanhood, who may have these questions and wonder, hmm, am I the only one that feels like this? 
is there a place where I can go and discuss this? And that is why I'm having these conversations today. All right. All right. So I decided to title this book. Oh, well, I'm going to I'm going to get to where I'm taking the conversation from. But I decided to title this episode, not this book, because it's not my book. <laughs> I decided to title this episode. Sexuality and the Black Church dash the white gaze part one. And if you are not familiar with the literary term white gaze, I'm going to take the definition from wikipedia.org and it says the white gaze is the assumption that the default reader or observer is coming from a perspective of someone who identifies as white or that people of color sometimes feel the need to take into account the white reader or observer's reaction. Various authors of color describe it as a voice in their heads that reminds them of that reminds them that their writing characters and plot choices are going to be judged by white readers and that the right and that the reader or viewer by default is white. Now, you may be asking why use this literary term to define this episode on sexuality and the black church. <laughs> you know why? Because part one in Dr. Douglas's book is named Black, Sexu black Sexuality, A Pawn of White Culture. And let me tell you something, she went there. Oh my. And it wasn't in a derogatory, disrespectful way, but it was definitely um, put in a way that really made you understand that, okay, I may not, sexuality may not be hmm, a construct of only white people, but how black people are viewed as sexual beings has definitely been a construct of the white idea of black people. You've heard it. Uh, black men are great in bed and they're probably a little bit more well endowed than their white counterparts. And because of that, they're barbaric and, you know, they know how to do that thing or whatever. Um, and that white women are um, sexual paralysis. You know, our little girls are sexualized huh, from the age, you know, <laughs> who <laughs> name a number, you know what I'm saying? Like our little girls, black girls are sexualized and, they, and you know, we are put in these sexual prowess ways um, a lot earlier than our white counterparts. Uh-huh. And that the idea of the Jezebel, you've heard me discuss this on another podcast episode, comes from the idea of the black woman, the black, no, well, the idea of Jezebel does not come from that. That is a biblical um, individual. But how black women during slavery times were often called Jezebels just because, just because, and that term Jezebel was a derogatory term meaning whore or, um, you know, a sexual individual or what have you. So the white culture of this world had a lot to do with how black people were viewed sexually. So you, if that's the case, you know that definitely trickled down into the church. I highlighted a quote here that she put on um, page 17 in chapter one, and it was talking about white culture. To be white in the United States says nothing directly about an individual culture, ethnic heritage, or biological background. A society created to preserve white culture either would be very confused or tremendously disappointed. White culture does not exist. White power, privileges, and prerogatives within 
capitalist society do exist. I, I agree with that. And that is a um, quote she took from a gentleman with the last name Marble. He is an author that she quotes often in this chapter. And, and I think that speaks a lot to what white culture is. What is white culture? What does that even mean to be white in America? How does that play out? These are all of the concepts she begins to discuss in um, this chapter. Another part that I highlighted was if the exploration of non-white sexuality in general is important to white culture, then the abuse of black sexuality in particular is absolutely critical. Black sexuality has been the primary target of white culture for at least two reasons. First, black people have been absolutely critical to white economic power, initially as free labor and later as cheap labor. So you can you know where we're going with that, slavery and then um, Jim Crow. The ability to freely exploit black bodies with relative impunity has been critical to the labor market, very true. To that end, white culture has been attacked, has attacked, let me say that again. To that end, white culture has attacked black sexuality as a means of, de of dehumanizing black men and women. Such dehumanization has made it easier to enslave black people and treat them as merely as property and labor commodities rather than human beings. Wow. Mm, 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 mm. And that is extremely true. And I know this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the church, which I'm going to be talking about here, but it kind of lays the foundation as to how these ideologies have trickled in to the Anglican, Christian, evangelical, whatever, um, Catholic even church, where these thoughts have come from. And you have to lay the foundation on that. Now, she begins with a part on page 25 y'all in this section named sexuality and the christian tradition where my jaw was on the ground because it's like don't get me wrong my disclaimer is before this episode so again if anything i'm talking about makes you uncomfortable please you know rewind a few minutes and listen to the disclaimer because i can't keep censoring myself because you're going to be sensitive about what I'm discussing. <laughs> anyway, she goes into, and remember, these are her theories. We do not have to agree with everything she is saying, but she definitely really hits on the idea of where and how these thoughts that I've been talking about have entered into our church. So I'm going to start on page 25 and read as significant as it is to understand the relation of sexuality to power, it is also crucial to understand Christianity's role in the giving sexuality, in giving sexuality such an authoritative prominence in the degradation of particular human beings. Western Christianity's dominant approach to sexuality has contributed to white culture's ability to challenge black people's humanity by impugning their sexuality. This approach is grounded in a dubious separation made between the body and the spirit. 
the next part I highlighted. Pre-Christian Hebrew life showed little tendency towards seeing the body as an impediment to to spirituality. Sexuality apparently was appreciated as a gift from God. as evidenced by the Hebrew scriptural references to persons as flesh rather than spirit or by the celebration of sensuality in the Song of Solomon. I'm going to stop right there. This is interesting to hear to me because maybe you don't know, but I had the privilege of being on a live with Habiba Kande a few weeks ago, and he brought this up to me. He said, how could sexuality not be discussed in your um, churches and your Christian churches or in your Christian background or your Christian tradition when the Song of Solomon is right there. Like you can't miss it. I believe is right before Ecclesiastes or after, forgive me, is right there. You can't miss it. So how is that glossed over and not seen as a book that discusses um the love between a man and a woman physically, the desires of a man between uh, uh, desires of a man and woman that they share or that they want. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the Song of Solomon before in the King James Version, but woohoo, child, that's a book. Okay, it was read at my wedding. It's a book, and it's you know, where is my lover type of stuff. Like that, those are the words that I use in there. Breasts are as doe eyes and all type of things in that book. So, you know, there's a, there's a point to what Habib was saying. I'll continue. Yet Christianity gradually became influenced by those aspects of Greek thought that degre- that degraded the body and fostered a profound split between the body and the spirit. This spiritualistic dualism was primarily crafted by Platonic and Neoplatonic thought. I went ahead and researched the book Song of Solomon, the Songs of Solomon in on my own after that conversation and after reading this particular part of this chapter because I was like, okay, I need this is the first time, I'm not kidding you, that I saw in writing, this is not verbal, that I saw in writing that the Song of Solomon could be referred to as anything than the love of anything else other than the love of God towards his people or you being the impending bride of of Jesus Christ for when the rapture comes, et cetera, et cetera. I grew up under the impression that the Song of Solomon was just that. Although it's pretty evident what you're reading with your eyes, that it's more than that, that it was what I was taught. Therefore, that is what I believed. So I went and researched um, myself to find out online what the other thoughts out there are. And still the overall governing thought out there with Christian websites that I came across, I will not quote because I don't want to arguments with nobody, but I came across a few Christian websites that explicitly stated, okay, that it was just primarily about God's love towards his people um, us being the bride of Christ. That's it. So I found it very interesting that there was, um, that there's an idea out there that it could be anything different. And I also find it interesting that it would be about the the dualism about how the body was the body in some schools of thought and the spirit was a spirit. Now we often look at sex as a degradation of, sorry, 
I don't want to say we often look at, but there's a school of thought out there that says sex is a degradation, can be a degradation towards the body, meaning fornication, which would in- in send, send your soul to hell, right? Because fornication is a sin. So I found this part very interesting to me and I had to highlight it because I feel like that is something that needs to be discussed in the aspect of where the my ideas of pleasure and sex are, are concerned, how I never really heard about sex being a pleasure-based activity, intercourse being a pleasure-based activity growing up. That was not something I ever heard in the same sentence. Um, I'm sure those who were engaging in the, in the activity knew it felt good, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I don't think it felt good to everybody for more reasons than one. I'll get to an episode on that later on. Um, but I do think there was a certain level of pleasure to this act that people knew was there, but it was not discussed. And why was it not discussed? Now, my my questions that go through my head was, did they not discuss sex being pleasurable because they did not want people to have sex? Or did they not discuss sex being pleasurable because it wasn't pleasurable to them? You know, I have so many questions where all of that is concerned, but I did feel the need to draw that part out. What else do I want to bring out in this? Um, <laughs> I highlighted another. I highlighted another part that you see how I laughed because it made me laugh when I first read it. It starts off by saying, "Hmm, where do I want to begin?" Because I highlighted a certain episode, a certain part of it, but I want to give you the background. Let me see, where can I begin? Sexuality became for Christianity one means for exploring truth of oneself. Christianity explains Foucault, which Foucault is one of the philosophers she references in this chapter, proposed a new type of experience of oneself as a sexual being. Yet while Christianity may have made people aware of who they were as sexual beings, it did so in a negative way. I highlighted this next part. The dominant Christian thought regarding human sexuality emphasized it as something that Christian women and men should strive to overcome so that they could live a life more pleasing to God. Does that sound, does that sound familiar to anyone? Does that sound familiar to anyone listening to this? That overcoming the desires of the flesh, I can go quote scripture on this one here, will make you more pleasing to God. And as you know, sex is a, I'm saying that the thought, the school of thought is sex is a flesh thing. Although sex can also be a spiritual thing too. But again, that's an episode for another time. Um, I was like, wow, that is very true. I, you know, we live a life or I've lived a life where everything you do is to get to heaven. You don't have to worry about pleasuring yourself down here because if, as long as you live right down here by whatever means right means, um, you'll go to heaven and you can get all the pleasure you want up there. And that has been the governing school of thought in my world for many years. And I'm sure many years before I even touched this earth, that was a school of thought. And it doesn't look like it's just my church or my churches or the type of churches that I fellowship with have this idea. Um, And I think that's something that we should also strive to discuss too. How does me enjoying something that's inherent how does me enjoying something, it's almost saying you shouldn't enjoy a good piece of cheesecake because 
You just shouldn't. Don't worry about it. Don't enjoy the oxtail and rice and peas. For what? Don't enjoy, I don't know, whatever else things you want to put in here. Don't en don't enjoy that because you don't need to. Um, <laughs> What else do I want to bring out in this chapter? I'll read this last part. Essentially, the Western Christian tradition opened wide the door for the possibility of utilizing sexual practices or alleged sexual practices as a means for devaluing <laughs> and, de and demonizing human beings. It did this in several ways. First, it tended to make general genital sexual activity the defining feature of sexuality, therefore maligning the sexual ethics of a particular people became sufficient in a Christian society for challenging their entire personhood. Second, by associating sexual activity with passionate, irrational, even satanic behavior, the Christian tradition provided persons with a means for placing a sacred canopy over their acts of domination and oppression. For if one can show that a people was by nature libanous, then it was not difficult to suggest that such a people was by nature an affront to God. Finally, the Christian tradition, spiritualistic dualism, alienated persons from their sexuality as it demanded the denial of their body selves. There goes the flesh. For such alienation from an essential part of one being often compels one to project unto, unto others what one finds undesirable but unavoidable about oneself. In this regard, those who view themselves as superior in society, with white men generally at the apex in quotations and in um, uh, brackets, are compelled to deny their vile sexuality and project their own very real sexual desires on others, thus labeling those others as hypersexual. In short, the historically dominant Christian attitude towards sexuality provided the ruling class with an effective tool for justifying its domination over others. Mm, mm, mm. Basically, the thought was we as African-centric people could not control ourselves sexually. And only those who were non-African could. That is basically what that just said. And how that went on to govern and keep people of color um, controlled for many years. Now, remember, during slavery time where um, a big part of the formation of, you know, this whole racist, classist, whatever society was formed, I mean, there was um, human, there were human life on the quote unquote North America land hundreds of years, thousands of years before that gentleman, um, Christopher Columbus came and quote unquote discovered America, whatever. But the slave trade provided a very big part of how they were, um, uh, how racism is still um, seen in this country and felt. And of course, those who came over from Africa were not allowed to continue to, uh, what's the word, engage in their own religious beliefs. They had to um, serve the they had to worship over time it happened you know this didn't happen right away but over time it happened that as a slave you went to church with your slave master or they were afraid of the practices of the african slaves so they kind of demonized what they did even spiritually that's a whole conversation for another time 
Um, but think about it. If you are now telling someone else that the God, you know, whatever way they served is no good. Once you have them there, you have them everywhere. And this was not done in a way of love. This was done in a way of control. Another thing that blows me away with those of the time, the white governing culture of the time, thinking that they had superiority over the black slave um, sexually and otherwise just, just kills me because the amount of rape and pillaging that happened by these so-called people who were in the governing class, which were white, by the way, um, happened at their hand. The violence, the sexual violence that took place, the amount of mulatto mixed race children walking around on these slave campuses. How did that happen? So you're telling the slave that they are hypersexual. You are telling the slave that they have no control over their sexuality. However, you are using them for your own sexual prowess and then telling them that they are no good and that they should serve the same God that you serve. Think about the logic in that. Just think about it. And unfortunately, there are schools of thought out there that still, till this day, believe that about people from the diaspora, from the African diaspora. And it's really, really, really sad. Now, this was just part one of this book. This was just part one, y'all. Part one, Dr. Douglas gave us all of that. Holy moly. It was, if you haven't ran out to get this book and if you are willing to at least explore i'm not saying you're going to agree with everything i'm not saying that you should agree with everything but in order to have a conversation about these things you need to be educated about them and being educated does not only happen in the classroom y'all it doesn't um these are things that i feel like will help the generations that are coming after us explore and learn again this is in no way, shape, or form for me telling people to disregard what they've been taught in their life. Even me, for myself. It's not, this is not me trying to change what I've been taught. It's trying to enlighten myself even more on what I was taught. It is even, this for me is to say, okay, I can understand why my people did what they did. I can understand why they taught me the way they taught me. I can. I fully understand it. Was it, may, was it all correct? Maybe not. Um, but like I said, they were teaching me what they were taught. And coming from where we were coming from, my foremothers and forefathers didn't have the opportunity to enlighten and, catch and educate themselves out of the status quo. They just didn't have the time. You know, people were trying to survive, y'all. They were trying to survive. They were trying to feed their families. They were trying to make ends meet. They were ripping and running. You know, they were doing the thing. They were trying to keep the family together. They were doing the best that they could. So I feel like the baton has now been passed on to our generation um, to make sure the things that we are passing down do more good than harm. Because I don't know if the previous can be said, if this could be said about the previous generation. I don't know. You guys have heard me say, you don't, my mother and I did not discuss sex before I got married. I'm a married woman and we still don't discuss it. It's not going to happen. She is you know that's just not gonna happen mothers and daughters don't discuss that stuff um i i don't i was asked a question if there were any men uh during that interview with habib if there were any men who were teaching young men how to have these conversations about sex i said i don't know you would have to ask a man because they sure as hell was not discussing it in front of me you know so i do think it is important 
I do think it is important for us to um, to keep in mind all of these aspects. And even in this book, I don't think so far from what I read that Dr. Douglas is trying to call anyone wrong either. I don't think that's what's going on. I think she is trying to start a conversation about where these thoughts and concepts may have come from. Go read the Song of Solomon. I'm tasking you to go do that. Go and read the Song of Solomon and you tell me what you get when you read from that, <laughs> okay? You tell me um, how you interpret that book and you let me know if, um, let me let me pull up something. I'm gonna do this in real time as I was doing with the book. I'm gonna pull up Song of Solomon 2, chapter two. Let's, let's do that. I'm gonna pull up Song of Solomon 2. Oh boy, which one do I want? Where do I want to read from in this? Cause woo. Hold on. <laughs> Song of Solomon 3. By night, this is verse 1, on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchman that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth, and I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that he stir, <laughs> that he stir not up nor awake my love till he please. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, frankincense, with all the powders of the merchants? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it, and they are valiant of Israel. They hold all swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. Mm -mm -mm. This is... And tell me how that language sound. Tell me how, how that, tell me how that, that language sounds to you. I want to pull up another one. Song of Solomon 4. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 5. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as flocks of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing. Wherefore, everyone bears twins and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like thread of scarlet and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pom pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the tower of David, build it for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Mm -mm -mm. Sheesh. 
Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. And the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Whew, this is... That's some spicy stuff right there. Is The language of Song of Solomon is like no other in the Bible. Even you know, first Corinthians 13, which is the chapter about charity or love or whatever word you want to use. It ain't as sweet as this. Okay. So it does call into question the idea of what song of Solomon, just a book about God's love towards his people, or could it also be interpreted as a love between two people, two regular human beings. And I do want to leave you with that thought, sexuality and the black church chapter one, part one, no, chapter one, part one, chapter one. I think I still have another, let me see. I think I still have another chapter to go. Yes, I do. I have another chapter to go and this is going to be something. All right. Stay tuned. Keep tuning in. Thank you so much for listening again. I appreciate, I appreciate, I appreciate you. Please like, please share. Please tell everyone you know, near, far, and everywhere, okay, that Conversations with Akilah is lit, and we're keeping it real around here, because I do have a lot to say. Until next time, bye. You just finished listening to Conversations with Akilah, where I have a lot to say, okay? Please be sure to tune in every Friday where you can have a conversation with yours truly. We'll be talking about any and everything. Nothing is off the table. Please remember to share this and like it and comment everywhere podcasts are heard. We are on Apple, we are on Spotify, you name it. Your like, your comment, your share will help this podcast grow, grow, grow. I appreciate you. Thank you.